Romans chapter 11. Right, we're going to go ahead and get started because we've got a lot of information to cover tonight because we're not going to be back for a couple of weeks because of Jubilee and I don't want to leave us hanging. So I'm going to try to try to get us finished up with the teaching time by 6.48, but we'll see. That's what we're shooting for. Well, I'm not trying to be specific. So let's open up with prayer. Father God, as we come to this text, as we deal with a complicated, difficult to understand issue, Lord, we look to you. You promised us that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. And so, Lord, we pray that he would do that. Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we would see wonderful things from your word. Lord, I pray that we would not err, we would not misinterpret, we would not misstudy. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word, which does not leave us ignorant. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we talk about the new covenant, there are two extreme directions that we can go. One is that we are under the new covenant, so we unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament and the uncovenant, old covenant, and we don't have anything to do with it anymore. That God's done, that with that stuff, that was just God preparing His people, and now that's done. That's one extreme. On the other extreme is... <clears throat> Would, would be a hyper-replacement theology. Replacement theology teaches that through this text, we see that God replaced Israel with the church. And so if we read in the Old Testament where God makes a promise to Israel, that applies to the church. When God says in the book of Revelation that such and such is going to happen to Israel, that's replaced with the church. Everywhere in the Bible where we read about Israel, that's been replaced with the construct of the new covenant and therefore the church. Both of those are extremes, and I want us to just look and see what the text says. And Paul is leading up to the very question that we're talking about. So we looked at the covenants. We saw the covenant of works with Adam. We saw the noetic covenant after the flood. We saw the Abrahamic covenant. We saw the Mosaic covenant. And now we're looking at the New Covenant. So Paul, in talking about how Jesus is working, how He's allowed us to access His righteousness through Jesus Christ, the natural question comes up. And we're going to work our way through this chapter. I ask then, Paul says, has God rejected His people? So has God said, I'm done with Israel and now it's just the church? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. 
But if, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So what he's saying is, is just as Elijah said, when remember after Elijah went up on Mount Carmel, the children of Israel had gone after false gods. They had followed after Baal. Jezebel had her idols to Baal in the temple. And Elijah stood on that mountain and said, Why do you waffle between two decisions? Either God is God or He's not. One or the other is true. And so he set up a test where he took uh, the, the, the prophets of Baal, attempted to uh, get Baal to send down fire. They went all day. It didn't work. He wouldn't send down fire. Elijah mocked them openly. Maybe, maybe your God's tired. You need to get louder and wake him up. Maybe he's gone potty, and so you need to cut yourself so that he'll pay attention to you. So he mocked them. Nothing happened. He then walks out to the altar that had been built for Yahweh, pours water over it. And the Bible tells us that God responded with fire that licked the water up on the, in the trenches on the side. God showed Elijah that he was God. He showed his children who was God. And Elijah left that scene, ran down the mountain, God then sends rain, and Elijah ends up finding himself suicidal, really. He prays that God would take his life. He, you see real spiritual depression, which is a real thing. Um, oftentimes, after... A, something happens in your life where you're emotionally, spiritually up here, that'll be followed by something you feel down here. You feel like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. And that's what happened to Elijah. We see in the Bible the way that God responded to that, the solution. God sent an angel. Elijah was told to nap. He woke up. The angel had made him some, and I'm quoting from the text, some little cake. So he had some cupcakes. Fed him some cupcakes. Told him to go back to sleep. And as we said the other week, that shows that a nap and a cupcake can fix anything. In that time of spiritual depression, Elijah say, saying, says, I'm the only one left, God. It's just me. It's just me. And God said, no, I've kept 7,000 back for myself. I've kept 7,000 from, from bowing the, ne- the knee to Baal. God maintained for himself a remnant. And Paul then goes on to argue that it's the same way today. You realize... Um, as you look at that scene where Jesus, fulfilling prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, comes into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, that that was the moment that, in the book of Psalms, where it says, this is the day that the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. That is, that is referring to a specific day. He's not just saying any old day. He's talking about one specific day. And if you read the rest of that psalm, you see that he's talking about the day that Jesus triumphantly came into Jerusalem. That was the moment when the Jews could have accepted their king. The Bible says, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. And let him who has eyes to see, let him see. And God chose at that time. If you read the sermon that Peter preaches to that very same crowd that yelled, crucify him. 
you realize that when Peter preaches to that, that, the crowd after the day of Pentecost, the people that he's preaching to are the very people who demanded Jesus' death. That's why after he accuses them of killing the very one that God sent, they said, what do we do, brother? And he said, "Be repent and be baptized every one of you for the remission of sin. The Bible tells us that the crowds that gathered around the cross, when they left, they left beating their breath. They knew they had messed up. So they rejected the Son of God. Does that mean that at that point God rejected him? That's the, that's the question that Paul is asking here. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. You realize that for the entire history of the nation of Israel, that day had been predicted. Your king is coming. Their king came. They didn't like it. They rejected him. So, does that mean that Israel failed to receive what was promised? What it was seeking? The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Just as a warning, if God is convicting you of a specific sin, if God is convicting you of a way that you're living your life, and you don't repent, God will not keep going on and on and on and on and on. I have witnessed in my life to probably five or six people who have reached a point where they've heard the gospel so much and they've rejected it so much that there's no hope. Their eyes are closed. I've told the story, and I still have his name in the front of my Bible. I'm absolutely positive that he has to be passed by now. There was a guy at a place where I pastored that lived across the street from the church. and He was angry because... Shockingly, the church is filled with hypocrites, and he had all these reasons why. But whenever I would go over to his house to try to talk to him about the gospel, he'd cuss me out. He, he, if, if he was drunk, he would cuss me out. If he wasn't drunk, he would usually sit around and talk to me. He was, he was a very nice guy. Um, but he was just lost. And the gospel had no impact on it. That's one of the hard things. I was talking to a young man who... Uh, has pastored now in the Northeast for years. He's moving back to Gadsden to pastor. And he said, well, what do I need to do? And I said, brother, be prepared. This place is a hard mission field. Everybody in Etowah County is a Christian. Just ask them. There's no tie to a person's faith and the way they act. People think that because I made a, a profession of faith when I was 8 or 13 or 23 at some revival, that I can do whatever I want to do and God doesn't care. This city is absolutely filled to the brim with people who are going to go to hell who think because Mama went to that church that I'm good. And those people have a crunchy gospel shell and they can't hear the gospel. They can't hear it because they've been exposed to it and they've never cried out to repentance and so they become immune to the gospel. They have eyes to see, but they do not see. They have ears to hear, but they don't hear. 
They lie to themselves, they listen to the lies of the enemy, and they think that there's no tie between what we do and what we say we believe. And I'm telling you, real belief is followed by a change in life. If there is no change in your heart's desires, then examine yourself. And so Paul is saying that the children of Israel were called, they had the king in front of them, but they could not hear. And God was done dealing with them. They, God, in fact, gave them a spirit of stupor. David said, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, Paul goes on to say in verse 11, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, this is what he's saying. When Jesus was rejected by the Israelites, that horrible situation, and and you've heard me say it this way before, the most wicked, evil, vile act in human history that God sent His only Son, and humanity rejected Him and said, Kill Him. In our wickedness, in our evil, we didn't want anything to do with that Jesus man. And I will even go so far as to say, with the old Negro spiritual, were you there when you, they crucified my Lord? And in that spiritual, it specifically states a, a, a truth that I believe, that unless you can identify with the crowds who said crucify him, you can't identify with the ones who celebrated at the grave. Unless you look at your own heart and see the wickedness of your own heart, and you know full well, if I had been there in my lost condition, that I would have joined in and said, crucify him. Because he exposes our sin. The thing about Jesus was was that in his love, in his gentleness, the text tells us that he wouldn't even bruise or read. It exposed the wickedness of our own hearts. And so we would have joined in with those crowds saying, crucified him. And when we realize that and we approach the Father and ask for forgiveness, then we can be saved. God turned the most wicked, vile, evil day in human history into the most beautiful picture of love ever painted. Because he who knew no sin became sin for us. And so what Paul is saying is that rejection by the Jews meant that all the Gentiles could get saved. So that ultimately in that Abrahamic covenant when God told Abraham, through your seed... All the world will be blessed. When Peter preached at Pentecost, he said a strange thing. It shows the tension in the Bible between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. He says to them, This Jesus who you crucified. So the culpability for that crucifixion he places firmly on their shoulders. This Jesus who you crucified, God had chosen before the foundation of the earth to slay. And so that tension you see 
there in the text we see here where Paul says that they rejected Jesus and through their trespass salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, he, verse 13, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, insomuch then as I am apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So what Paul is saying is that at this point, as he's writing this, Christianity was more or less a sect of Judaism. Everybody, until Paul came along and Peter came along with Cornelius, who was getting saved, was we're Jews. But now, after Peter's experience with Cornelius, after Paul's experience with the apostles who had um, worshipped in the baptism of John, and when they got saved, they also, these Gentiles, also received the Holy Spirit just like the Jews did on the day of Pentecost. The prophecy in Joel is fulfilled. Gentiles too, thank you Lord, are welcome to the fold. And so what Paul is saying, he hopes that if the Jews see that some of those Gentiles are getting saved and they're participating in the work that Jesus did, then maybe they'll get saved too. That's his prayer. Paul so longs to see his brethren get saved that he says later in this book, I wish that if I could go to hell, I would rather go to hell if, if, my, if the Jews would get saved. So he still loves his brethren. He still longs for them to come to Christ. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So what he's saying is is that the opposite is true as well. That just because a person is a Jew doesn't mean that they don't have access to life. Because the natural conclusion of what he'd set up before was, well, then salvation's passed to the Gentiles. But no, Paul is saying no, that a, a person who's a Jew could get saved just as easily as a person who's a Gentile. If they accept Christ, they're, they're brought back. And then he goes to this analogy. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. So the analogy that Paul now shifts to is that there's an olive branch. It's the same metaphor that Jesus used. Remember when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and he says, What if a great king sends his servant out and plants a vineyard? And... He leaves and leaves someone to watch that vineyard. And then he sends his servants to check on the vineyard, and they, they beat him and throw him out of the vineyard. And then he sends another person, and they beat him and kill him. And so the king says, well, I'll send my son. Surely if they see my, it's my son, they, they will treat him with respect. And they send the son, and they, they beat the son, and then kill him. Jesus left that story just out there. The Jews knew what he was talking about. So in this vineyard that God had planted, some of the branches are broken off. And so he has grafted in us to the vineyard. You see, the promises that we see in the Old Testament for Israel are for Israel. I still believe that when God says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, that still applies. 
But I believe that we are grafted into those promises. We're not naturally supposed to be. I've, I've joked before that it's not funny, but there, there are people who, who will say things like, um, well, there are people who argue that the reason why white people shouldn't date black people is because um, you just shouldn't have any, uh, that God has separated the races and that, that we are God's people. And I always go, you realize that when all those verses were written, we were like running around in the woods in Germany eating each other. That's not written about us. That's written about his chosen people, and we ain't them. We're, we're the heathens he's talking about, telling the Jews not to marry. That's us. We're the heathen. We're the Gentiles. We have no right to the promise. God in his mercy has grafted us into the promise. Now, I don't know if you've ever done any grafting. When I, I, uh, we lived at the farm, I, I played at this because I wanted to learn how to do it. So here's what happens. So let's say you, you get a grapevine, and you've got the rootstock that comes up, and you've got uh, a shoot of green seedless grapes, which is what I, what I did. I wanted to grow some green seedless grapes because all the grapes that we had were those wild-looking red grapes that had seeds all in them, and Emily just could not figure out how to eat those grapes with the seeds. She would eat one and she'd sit there for 10 minutes going and then the grape running all down her face and I'm like oh for the love child just spit the seed out and she couldn't figure it out so I went and bought some some vine that was green seedless grape and what you do is you actually bore a hole in the rootstock with with a knife and and then you take the rootstock and you put it in that hole that you trim it off so that there's it's all white wood and you put it in that hole and then you actually put in little wedges to keep it tight and then you take some some string or or uh, cloth. I used used an old T-shirt and wrapped around the roots and, and and wrapped it around. And if you know what you're doing, which I didn't, and mine all died, um, what happens is is that vine starts drawing its energy from those roots. Jesus u- uh, uh, uses this analogy in the Book of John. I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me. And my word abides in you. Remember all that? That's exactly what he's talking about. That a good husbandman who knows what he's doing with those vines can put those in there. And if that even someone who knows what they're doing, they say about a third will take hold of those grafted branches. Because that vine has to learn to draw its sustenance from the rootstock. That is a beautiful picture of our relationship with Christ. If you're doing this Christian walk in your energy, it's not going to last. And all those that I put it put on there, the first three, four months, it looked like it was going to work. I mean, I got little little buds, and I got all. It was just, yeah, man, I am woohoo! I'm the great master. And then winter came, and then when spring came, they never put any anything out. And then I would I test the ends and they just break off of my hands because they were dried out because they weren't drawing their sustenance from the root that's exactly the analogy that paul's using that the vines that were in the root stock before which was israel didn't produce any fruit they were just being vines and so the husbandman the father came and cut the vines off and threw them away that's one of the places where jesus talks about hell 
where the vines are cast into the fire. And so he grafted us in. And Paul then, taking that analogy, wants to make sure that we don't get arrogant. He says, Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. But you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. This is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. It bothers me when we say things like America is a Christian nation. It bothers me because, first of all, God never saves countries. He saves people. You can be a Christian in this nation, and I pray that if the church acts like the church, we can, we can be the salt and light to change this nation to where we act like Christians. But when we say that America is a Christian nation, what it implies is, is that everybody in, in America just gets to get saved. And they don't. No more than the person got saved just because they were born into Israel. And what Paul is saying is don't get arrogant. Don't think, don't forget that God broke the branches off of Israel. He'll break you off. Believe. Don't be arrogant. Be humble. And remember that it was, it's God who grants grace. It's God who grants salvation. We don't just by birthright deserve anything from God. In fact, when we misuse the text, okay, when God said, Harley, you might remember that. I, 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 where did Harley go? Well, apparently he ran off. Oh, there you are. I used it the very first night I ever talked to somebody at North Glencoe. There's a text that, that I see all over with American flags all over it. My people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. I will return and heal their land. Okay, in its context, God is talking to Israel. And God is saying to Israel in the middle of his statement, if I set before you a blessing and a curse, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I'm going to cast you out to the nations. I will punish you. And then he says, but if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then I will turn and heal their land. I will bring them home. Now, I don't see any application in that to a country like America. We're not Israel. I do see an application of that text in his church because we are his people. And so if we want healing to occur in this church, if we want healing to occur among the, the universal church found in this community, the way that we can attain that is by falling on our knees and praying. If my people, that's us, woohoo, hello. If my people, we're his people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, then I will turn. So we have to be careful nationally about becoming arrogant and claiming promises that God meant for Israel. We have to read the Bible how it was meant to be read in its context. So Paul says, don't be arrogant. Note, verse 22, then that the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. 
For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? If you, and we're going to, I think we're about a year away, study end times, you will see that in the future, the Bible tells us that two prophets are going to show up in Jerusalem. The text doesn't tell us who they are. We had a discussion about this Tuesday. Um, I'm just guessing from extrapolation, think it'll be Elijah and Enoch because they're the only two people who never died. Some people say Elijah and Moses because they're the people who met with Jesus in the Mount of Transfiguration. I don't, I don't know who it's going to be. The two witnesses. And they're going to show up in Jerusalem and they're going to preach. And a bunch of people are going to get saved. 70,000 people are going to get saved. And then those 70,000 people who are all Jews, they know what tribe they're from, they're virginal men, they're going to go out and preach the gospel. And the Bible says that so many people are going to get saved that the number can't even be counted. God's not done with Israel. To me, end times is where replacement theology, the idea that the church has replaced Israel, falls apart. Because in the future, God still talks about Israel. Now, it's really funny... It's not funny, but it is funny. If you go in my office, I've got a couple of commentaries that were written in 1920. And if you get those off the shelves, you'll read people trying to explain away the mention of Israel in the book of Revelation. And they'll, they'll say, we, I understand that the Bible says Israel, but we understand and we know that Israel will never be a nation again, that after 70 AD and it was destroyed that geopolitically that could never happen, so God has to be. And they'll explain away what God says. To us sitting here today, that seems silly, because Israel is a nation. So God's going crazy. God's going to do what He said He would do. And it was no problem for Him whatsoever to recreate the nation of Israel. The Hebrew language has even been resurrected. The same Hebrew that I learned in seminary can be used to read the Jerusalem Post. And it was literally a dead language. Nobody used the language day to day except in academic study. And so it was retaught to kids and relearned. In fact, it's really funny some of the modern words that they had to transpose into the Hebrew because unfortunately there's not a Hebrew word in the Bible for telephone. So they took the English word telephone, and if you have two telephones, it's telephonim. So the same, remember we learned when we were talking about angels, uh, the im, it, it makes up plural. They just took telephone, stuck an I-M on the end of it, go, here you go, here's your new word. And so they, they do that a lot. So re- the language has been resurrected. There are people who are talking in Hebrew. Israel is a strong nation. So God's going to continue to do what He said He was going to do with that nation. And what Paul is saying here is the thing that keeps... Now, we could read this whole text and think that what he's saying is is that you personally, if you go out here and sin and do whatever, then you can lose your salvation. You'll be broken off the branch again. Now, one of the principles of hermeneutic principles, and that's the fancy way to say, the way to study the Bible, is we never translate texts alone. We always keep them in their context. Romans 8 will not let us believe that that's the case, which is just three chapters before. Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So the question becomes, when is a person saved? I asked this to CR on Sunday. Nine. When were you saved? 
Now, if you look at Romans and 1 Corinthians, both, both two places in the Bible, it uses a past perfect continuous verb. We don't have anything like that in English. But what that means is that it's something that happened in the past. It's complete, but it's still working forward. And that's the way you and I's faith worked. You were saved. So the question, when were you saved, first of all, could be answered in Ephesians chapter 1. You were saved before the foundation of the world. Before God ever said, let there be light, you were chosen. God looked across the annals of time, and said, I want Liz. She's mine. You were saved at the cross. Our sins were forgiven when Jesus took the cup of our shame and wrath and punishment. When he said it was finished, that means there's no more work to be done. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. The priest has no more labors to be done. You were saved when you called on the name of the Lord and we're saved. And all those things happen in the past. You're being saved now. If you're walking in Christ, then hopefully today you're a little bit more like Jesus than you were yesterday. That God is convicting you of things that maybe five years ago you never even thought of as sins. And God could overwhelm us at any time with our sinfulness. It seems to me that the people that I've been around who are the closest to God are the ones who are the most acutely aware of their wickedness. As we grow in Christ's likeness, we realize how far we've got to go. So we were saved, we are being saved, and the Bible, thank you Lord, says that on that day we will be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. We will be completely saved. Sin will die. And death will be swallowed in victory. So you were saved. You are now being saved. And you will be saved. The fancy theological terms were justification. You were justified. Sanctification. You are being transformed in the image of Christ. And glorification. You will be like Him. It's a continual work. Now, the Bible does tell us there are some that went out from us and they went out from us to show that they were never of us. The pastor who uh, was the first person who identified that I should be a full-time minister who, who worked with me uh, as I was associate pastor in his church who laid hands on me and my ordination. Right now, if you go look at his Facebook page, uh, he claims to be an agnostic. He, uh, he works, not that this is necessarily super wicked, but he works at a brewery. Um, he uh, has no, he mocks, openly mocks Christianity. In fact, he's the definition of an atheist of where uh, I don't believe that there is a God and I hate his guts. Now, I pray for him on a regular basis, and I pray that he's just running from God and God will bring him home. But if he never comes back, it isn't that he lost his salvation, it's that he never was saved. He was playing a game. 
They went out from us to show that they were never of us. In Hebrews chapter 6, where Paul says, the, the one, There is therefore now no repentance for one who has tasted of the Holy Gift, who has seen the Holy Spirit work, and then returns crucifying again the Son of God. There's no repentance for that person. And then the next verse he says, But I believe better things for you, my brother, things that pertain to salvation. If you are transformed in the image of Christ, if you are a new creation, God didn't have any problem keeping you. God is just as sovereign over your sanctification as He is your justification. You were saved by grace through faith. You will be transformed. I'm living proof of that. I ran from God with everything that I had. I was talking on Monday with Garrett about how I remember very well being on Court Street in Jacksonville, North Carolina, I don't, uh, which now it's all Applebee's and, and, and a pretty little mall. But when I was there, it was a, not a nice place to be. There was a, a, a dancing club where ladies danced without any clothes on one end and one on the other, and in between it was all bars. And Court Street was where everybody walked up and down the street. And there was a Marine there who had been shot in Vietnam. He was throwing a white phosphorus grenade and he got shot through the back of the hand and it burnt his right arm off and his right leg. And every Friday and Saturday night he would put on his dress blues and he would stand out on Court Street with that runner board that went from here to here and he would preach the gospel. And it made me so mad. Because I was trying to run from God and I would walk out of a bar having a good time with my buddies and here I would see that Marine standing there saying, Repent! And God would tear my heart out. And it made me mad and I said, God, just leave me alone. I don't want anything to do with this. And God loved me enough to where He wouldn't let me go. The hound of heaven stayed on my trail And I had a wife that loved me enough that she prayed over me. And she had the guts to go to church and leave me at home like the bum I was being. And God convicted me and made me miserable in my sin and brought me home. And I'm so glad that He loved me enough not to let me wallow in my own stupidity and my own sin. God keeps us. He holds us. But what Paul is saying is, is don't be arrogant. Don't think just because God doesn't save a room. He saves people. And what the real warning on this is, and the people who I tremble for, are my kids. They're exactly what Hebrews 6 is referring to. Because they've seen God move. They've seen miracles that occurred. They've seen people be healed. They've seen God save people. The greatest miracle that occurs is a dead man who gets up away from that altar alive. They've seen that. They've tasted of the Holy Gift. They've seen the Holy Spirit move. They've felt the Holy Spirit descend on a room. But they don't just get saved because I'm saved. They get saved because they call on the name of the Lord and get saved on their own. And we can be arrogant. And we can say, well, they just they get a pass. I don't have to work to expose them to the gospel. And so Paul is saying here, 
the branch doesn't just get a pass. Because the branch just puts more off, more off, more off. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God is not done with Israel. You can't read the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, and believe that God is done with Israel. I don't see how replacement theology can work when you look at the eschatology. I can see how you could make an argument for Israel, the church replacing Israel if you look at the promises applied to the church, like as we did with if my people who are called by my name. I can see where people could argue that for that even in the, co- the covenantal relationship. And in replacement th- theology, they say that the covenant of baptism has replaced the covenant of circumcision, which is why they baptize babies in Presbyterian churches. But uh, to me, replacement theology completely falls apart when you start looking at the end times. Paul here says, God's not done. He will redeem them. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. And what he's saying here is, is that right now, they are antithetical to the gospel. They're not interested in the gospel. But if it wasn't for the faithfulness of David, if it wasn't for the faithfulness of Moses, if it wasn't for the faithfulness of Joshua, if it wasn't for the faithfulness of Isaiah or Jeremiah, we wouldn't have the Bible. We wouldn't have the truths that we believe. So those men were faithful, and we need to honor that. It's a fool who's born on third base and thinks he hit a home run. Verse 33, Oh, the depths and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor, or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This plan is hard to understand. But He's the one who put it together. And honestly, in my mind, if the whole thing made perfect sense and it was easy to to just draw out, then it wouldn't be God's plan. I think we can see what he's trying to say, but I think a lot of us look at it and go, that ain't the way I do it. And you know what? That's okay. Because it is the way that God did it. 